Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Can you turn in your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 16? Um, and I want you to look at I want you to look at verse eight, and then I want you to tell me if there's something that you see after verse eight. You can look on your phones. I mean, most of you have Bibles on your phones, so this will be in your phone Bible too. This like this won't just be in a physical Bible. Anybody? Some, so some manuscripts. Say it loud. Some manuscripts do not include verses nine through twenty. Nine through twenty. All right. Almost every single one of your translations should have something like that. The only one that won't have something like that is the King James Bible because it was translated in uh, at fifteen something. You know, it's like it's a really old. Maybe fifteen's wrong. Maybe sixteen hundreds. I don't know. It's really old. So um, that's the question. Uh, it may or may not belong to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I think I was going to tell you. I don't think it does belong to the Gospel of Mark. All right, um, and I want to address this now because it's going uh, uh, to affect how we approach tonight's text, right? So if you look at all of, I mean, this is, so if you have glasses, you can do this with me, but this is my, this is going to be nerdy, so we're shoving our glasses up our nose as a nerd, um, and if you look at all the available Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, I know, as, as one is ought to do, um, there are six different endings, possible endings, attached to the Gospel of Mark. However, Scholarship uh, helps us refine this to kind of three options, all right? Three options. The first, the Gospel of Mark ends at chapter 16, verse 8. But because of the abrupt ending, later, scribes felt compelled to add verses 9 through 20 to, to add for a sense of closure, right? It isn't just us who likes the fairy tale ending, all right? So these scribes are kind of like, and if you, if you like, you'll see, like, when we get to Mark 16, verse 8, like, it doesn't end like the other Gospels ends. Like, John, uh, Matthew, and Luke, they all have, like, they come to some clear closure, all right? But if Mark ends in chapter 16, verse 8, you do not get closure, all right? So one thought is that scribes added this in. Um, that's probably true, in my opinion. Whatever, uh, the, the second option is that whatever ending is there after verse 8 was lost. Hear that? And so... Later, a scribe added what we now know and see as Mark 6, uh, 9 through 20, to tie up the loose ends, all right? So that, the, the second idea is that, like, there was an ending, but it got lost. Like, the, the manu- we can't find the manuscript, so scribes had to c- come up with one. And the third option is this, that 9, uh, or chapter 16, 9 through 20, is the authentic ending of Mark's gospel and part of the original text from Mark himself, all right? Just that, that Mark wrote this. Um, the question uh, arises, how did all this confusion come about? <laughs> like, how did, how, did, how did we, like, this is a big deal, right? This is important. This matters, right? Like, we, we claim as Christians for this to be the word of God if you're a Christian. I mean, that, that's the, kind of the claim. If you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. And that's more than okay. You don't have to, you don't have to subject yourself to these claims. <clears throat> but most manuscripts... Um, don't have 9 through 20. Most of the early manuscripts, the ones dating closest to the first century AD, right? So the earliest ones don't have it. And that the ones that do have it all have some sort of disclaimer like you find in your Bible. Which is really interesting, right? 
That's really, really interesting. By the way, I don't think this should dilute your confidence in the Bible. If anything, I think this should increase it. Right? You know more, not less now. You should be more confident that Scripture is the Word of God, not less confident because you know this knowledge. One scholar put it this way. Um, the question, and I think this is important, is not whether Matthew or Mark, sorry, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, it's not whether it's true or not. All right? The, the, this matches with, with all, all of, all of the, the other gospel accounts, which makes us think that scribes probably added it in later. It's not whether it's true or not. The question is, did Mark write it? Is this the story that Mark was trying to tell. And that's what we're saying here. We're not saying that chapter 16, verse 9 to 20 is not true. All right? It is true. It matches with the rest of Scripture. It matches with the character of Jesus. It has a commissioning like the rest of the end of the Gospels. It makes sense. It simply just wasn't what Mark wrote. All right? Mark's ending in chapter 16, verse 8, is abrupt. It's short. It's weird. It ends in the middle of a sentence. The, 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 he, uh, the, the Greek word is gar. Like, and it, it's kind of like our word for. Like that, it's, it literally ends on the word for. And like it's, it's like the beginning of another clause. And Mark's gospel just kind of... But as we study tonight's text, um, I hope to unveil for you that Mark is doing something intentional here. He, he's doing this for a reason. He's going to have this weird, awkward, abrupt, short ending... For a reason. And this leads to my second disclaimer about tonight's lesson. Um, actually, I should have this on the screen. Let's see if I did the slides right, guys. Hey, two disclaimers. So that was disclaimer number one. Um, disclaimer number two. Um, often when someone teaches on the resurrection, they, they focus on the proof that it actually happens, right? They're trying to prove to you, well, you know, like, um, uh, you probably heard something like this. Well, like, why would the disciples go, like, get themselves killed uh, proclaiming this? If, if he actually didn't rise from the dead, right? Like, you know, people will focus on these proofs of the resurrection. Um, and, and that is all fine. That is all well. But tonight, that's not going to be our focus. Because that's not what Mark is trying to get across. And that becomes particularly relevant and clear when we accept that Mark ends his gospel in verse 8. You see, we ask this question because we live in... The post-Enlightenment era. Anyone, like, history class would take, you know what the Enlightenment is, right? The, the, the idea of scientific reasoning. That's a very, like, to ask for proofs of the resurrection, that, like, we begin asking that question, like, you know, because of the Enlightenment. And by the way, we, on a, uh, living in a town and you attending a secular state university campus, you live in the wake of the Enlightenment whether you like it or not, all right? You, it, it is the air that you breathe out there, all right? And, and by the way, we're better off for it, right? Like it's not, the enlightenment's not a bad thing, but we have to recognize that it changes the questions that we ask. Mark's not asking that question. And nor are his readers. Remember the original audience of the Gospel of Mark. Anyone remember what it is? Who's the original audience? Romans in face of persecution. Romans in face of persecution. Really good job. Roman Christians in the face of persecution. All right, the emperor Nero had just killed Peter, and Mark compiles his, all of Peter's memories, and it is now what we know as the Gospel of Mark. In other words, now, now, here's the thing. 
the Roman church that, that is receiving this gospel, they had talked to Peter. They had touched the man. They, they had had one-on-one conversations with him. They had all the proof of the resurrection they needed. He was an eyewitness account to it, right? Their question that they're asking is not whether the resurrection happened or not. So that's not what Mark's trying to communicate here. Tonight, as we study this text, we will not not ask our own questions that we bring to it, but rather we're going to attempt to grapple with the questions that Mark wants us to grapple with. And those questions are not scientific in nature. They're not trying to prove something, but rather they're, they're theological in nature. They're trying to cultivate within me and you a worldview that is, that is based not on the reality of what the world has to offer, but rather is based on the reality of the resurrection of the Son of God. All right. Um, have any of you ever been put on the spot and like epically failed? Like just a raise of hands? Like, like How many of you like being put on the spot? Like you feel like you're really quick-witted and you're like... You know, Clay, you are. You, you, you can handle being put on the spot. You can. The, <laughs> Mary Beth, uh, for those of you who don't know, that is my wife, and more importantly, the mother of Naomi, who is perfect. Um, Naomi's our five-month-old daughter. Uh, she, uh, she is not one who likes to be put on the spot. So if Elise can, can cue up the video. I wanna, uh, Mary Beth's going to share uh, through this video. It's a little two-minute video, a, a quick story uh, of, of how she was once put on the spot and how it did not go well. So. Probably because she's taking care, care of her five-month-old daughter. Um, the, uh, someone has to watch her. It's crazy how that happens. 
Um, so, all right. So, uh, uh, hopefully you found that funny. Mary, uh, you should ask Mary about this. She has, she has a couple other funny stories from, from chapels. You should ask her the one about the nosebleed one time. It's, I think it's a, a pretty great one. Um, so I just got to catch the thing up here. So, um, all right. So, um, I don't, I don't know about you. Uh, I, I don't mind being put on the spot, but, but Mary Beth, uh, does not, uh, Mary Beth does not like being put on the spot. Um, throughout the fall, um, we, we've been in the Gospel of Mark all year. Um, we looked through Mark chapters 1 through 8. Um, and we were really asking two questions. Who is Jesus? And how do we respond to him in light of that? Who is Jesus? How do we respond to him in light of that? In the spring, we've been in Mark 8. We stopped halfway through in the fall. We've been at uh, second half of Mark 8. And we've gone, as you know, you know now, through the end of 16. And as we've done this, we've really been focusing on one, one question, the first question. And that is... Who is Jesus? And really what we've been focusing on, well, Jesus is the Messiah, but what does that mean? And what we've done is we've watched the disciples struggle again and again and again and again and again to understand and grapple with, like, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that we expected. And that just happens over and over and over again. They struggle with the fact that for Jesus to be the Messiah means that he has to be crucified and raised again. However, to close out his gospel... Mark circles back to this second question. Not, who is Jesus? But, we now know who he is. And if you were here with us last week, you know who he is. He's the Messiah. The Son of God. Right? What we heard in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, last week, was confirmed through the cross. The Messiah. The Son of God. But now we're circling back to that second question. Mark is going to tell the story of a people who are going to be put on the spot. But he's also trying to put us, the reader, on the spot as well. As he confronts us with the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? That's how Mark ends his gospel. Confronting me and you, the reader, with the question. And and all the people who have read the gospel of Mark throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, are confronted with this question if they take it seriously. Sure, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but what are you going to do with that information? Are you going to allow it to conform the rest of your life around him because of that? He is the risen Lord? Or, well, we'll get to that in a bit. Now that you've immersed yourself in this story, right? I, I look around this room. Some of you are new. Some of maybe your first time. But a lot of you have been here for this journey. What are you going to do with Jesus? Think back to Riley's scripture reading. If, by the way, if you have your Bibles and you haven't already, turn, turn to uh, 16, 1 through 8. And while you're turning, um, if you haven't already, well, let me just you know, think back to Riley's scripture reading. And, and everything in it, everything in that scripture reading is communicating this idea of death and defeat and, and weakness and, and loss and mourning. And, and he has unmet expectation, right? Like, like the wind has been taken out of their sails. That, that's the, the, the tenor of this text, right? This comes the wake of the death of Jesus. Now, this is going to offend our modern sensitivities, but for the original readers of this gospel and for the people experiencing it, who are the main characters of the, of the text that Riley read? The woman. For them, that's a sign of weakness, not strength. And we, we, by the way, the gospel changes that, right? And we'll get to that in a bit too, but... 
there's that line, it's such a poignant line, Joseph of, of Arimathea, who is still waiting on the kingdom of God and the unmet expectation. Do you, do you hear? I mean, that, that's painful. Still waiting on the kingdom of God. Pilate was confused that he, he was already dead. Jesus died so quick. He didn't even last long on the cross. Do you hear the defeat? And here's the thing for, for a Jewish audience and all these people interacting with Pilate are Jews. What does death make them? Unclean. And by participating in all these things, being near the dead body of Jesus, they make themselves unable to participate in the Passover festival that was happening at this very time. And by the way, they're all breaking a lot of Sabbath rules. Death, defeat, weakness, lost, mourning, confusion, unmet expectation. I mean, that Mark 15, 40 through the end of it is just painful. It's a weird question, but if that text were to have a color, what would it be? Black. Black. Yes. If you remember from last week, it says at noon, darkness covered the land. In Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And that darkness has not left, but is rather palpably tangible for all of these actors in this story. And it is in this context, and it's in that darkness, and this text that paints the picture just totally black. That we pick up in Mark chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to walk through the text slowly, and as we do, we're going to be asking these kind of questions. What, what did it mean for them? What does this mean for us? And with what is Mark trying to get us to grapple? Like, What is Mark trying to confront us with? So, Starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, right, so they've waited for the Sabbath to be over, right, so Jesus has been buried, they've waited for the Sabbath to be over. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might anoint Jesus' body. Very early on this first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, all right? So this would have been a common practice. If, If the Passover had not been happening, if Sabbath had not come up, this is something that they would have done before they put Jesus' body in the tomb. All right? Later, a year later, they're, they're really not supposed to do this. Well, this was supposed to happen before, but then a year later, this is, uh, they would go in and, and the body would have decomposed and there would just be the bones that were left. And they would put that, the, those bones in a box called an ossuary. Okay? I didn't pronounce that right, but just go with it. Um, and so... Um, So yeah, that, I mean that, that's what's happening. This, this is a normal practice. This is this is what they would have been doing anyways. They don't expect anything, all right. Everything for them, nothing's changed, right? Like we know that this story is heading to the resurrection. They don't. These are normal activities. Nothing's changed. They're still treating Jesus as if he's dead because in here in his in his mind in their minds he is, all right. So this is just normal activity. Nothing exciting is about to happen. In fact, they're about to go confront the fact they've lost one of their friends, the person they had put their hope and trust in. But then they asked each other, 
who would roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb, right? Like they don't know the stones roll away. They think they're going to have to. And by the way, like this is some poor planning on their part, right? Like they should have probably brought some people. But the, what, what this is pointing out, the reason Mark kind of adds this little detail in there, A, it is to point out like, right, like they have no expectation that something miraculous has happened and, and is about to happen. But also this is, this is amplifying that, that idea of the weakness of the woman. Right? Yet again, I know that offends our modern sensitivities, but just like realize what Mark's doing here. But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, and had been rolled away. The problem that they bring up on the way there is already taken care of. In their minds, yet again, they don't expect anything. What, what has happened? They show up to Jesus' tomb. They're going to put spices in. They're talking about how they're going to have to roll away this stone. What, what has happened in their mind? Yes, his body was stolen. This is adding insult to injury. They're not excited that the, the, the stone is rolled away, right? Like, we're, we're excited about it, right? Like, oh, yeah, you know, the tomb's empty, the stone's rolled away. No, like, it's insult on top of injury. Their best friend was killed. The guy they put all their hope in was killed. The guy they thought was going to come in and overthrow the Romans and, and restore Israel as a nation state, he's been killed. And then Rome stole his body. They took all our hope away. Could they not just let him rest in peace? Can we not just have this memorial set up to him forever? And, you know, just like, let us remember this guy. If you're them and you see this, the stone rolled away and it hits you that his body's been stolen, what's going through your mind? How do you feel? Defeated. Already more defeated than you already felt, right? How else? Insulted, yes, like, Rome, give us a freaking break. What else? I don't know Hebrew cuss words, but I'm sure they were throwing them out. Mark didn't add those details in for some reason. <laughs> what else? How else are you feeling? Angry. Angry? <clears throat> yeah, you're confused, too. You're like, what the frick is going on? These are the feelings, right? As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man. And he's dressed in white. Dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. I mean, like, what's going on? Now, uh, other accounts tell us that this is an angel. So, like, um, it, the, the Mark's imagery here is probably pretty clear. Like, a young man sitting in white. By the way, like an angel, like an angel of the Lord, right? Like, you know. Like, we call babies, like, little angels because we think of, like, cherubim, like, being angels. Like, you know, Naomi's, like, this little baby that's been sent down. Like, that's not what's happening here. Like, an angel, every time, every time an angel appears in the Bible, everyone is freaked out. All right? If you, like, think about the nativity scenes or some of the Old Testament things, like, uh, <clears throat> times where, like, an angel shows up, like, everyone, like, flips their lid. All right? So this is not, like, oh, like a young, a young boy, a young, cute little cherub. No, 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 no. Like, this is a scary being that they're being confronted with. And his, his white robes are like fluorescent and they shine out. Do you see how the light is piercing into the darkness? The scene that was black is about to become white. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. We just read those words and act as if it's totally normal, don't we? I mean, we just celebrated Easter, right? 
probably feels weird for you to talk about the resurrection not on Easter, but like you know, you don't have to only talk about the resurrection not on East, uh, on Easter. He's risen. You know, oh, he's risen. He's risen indeed. Oh, what quaint words. What nice words. Guys, that's like, that, that, that's crazy. Right? I mean, like, that is crazy. This is what makes Christians certifiably insane. And rightfully so by the world's mind. We should not take this lightly. If this is true, it changes everything. If this is true, it demands the entirety of your existence, the entirety of your life. You cannot just read those words as a nice platitude. This should totally reorient your worldview. When the women hear this, like, think about what might be going through their mind. Like, what are you talking about? He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And this is it. This is what we get from Mark on the resurrection. Not many details, right? It's pretty sparse, pretty terse, pretty abrupt. I think that the, the phrase, he is risen, you know, it, it takes what? Is that three? Uh, he's not, yeah, he's risen. That, that's three words in, in English. I think it's one word in the Greek. One word. Boom. That's all we get. No, no bodily resurrection accounts, just he is risen. The angel doesn't think they should be alarmed. By the way, they shouldn't, right? Like, Jesus predicted his resurrection five times in the Gospel of Mark. Five times before all this happened, Jesus said, this is going to happen. I'm going to be, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law three times on the way to Jerusalem, one time on the Mount of Transfiguration, and one time at the Last Supper. He said this was going to happen five different times throughout the Gospel of Mark. They should be expecting this. They should have been coming to the tomb with all the disciples. All of them should have been there expecting the stone to be rolled away. They shouldn't be alarmed. They should be like, oh, goodness, yeah. They should have been greeting him out there like, yes, you said the third day. We're here waiting for you to pop out. They shouldn't be alarmed. But they are. And he says, he's risen. And then he has to, like, justify it to them. Like, right? Like, understandably, you know, like, understandably, their minds are, they're like, what, what do you really mean? He's like, no, no, no. Like, look, he's risen. He, like, his body isn't here. Look. Look at where they laid him. I just want to pause here and ask two really important questions as these women began to grapple with what this meant, what, what did they think? Like, what did this mean to them? And then secondly, what does this mean for me and you? Right? Yes, you know, I don't want to leave you with, by the way, this should change everything and not like give you anything more than that. Right? So what did this mean for them? What did this mean for us? On the most surface of levels, right, their, their darkness is turned to light. As they begin to grapple with this news, it begins to dawn on them that everything has changed, that death has turned to life, that the crucified has been risen. Their friend has returned. He who claimed to be the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God, he is vindicated, just like he said. Those five times that Jesus predicted in the Gospel of Mark that he was going to die and to be raised, it starts to click. For the woman, right? At some point it has to. 
we know, by the way, from other accounts and the entirety of the book of Acts, that it starts to click for these women. Now, on a deeper level, if we, if we understand their, their, their Jewish worldview that they have, the idea that someone would raise from the dead a bodily resurrection isn't anathema to them. It isn't crazy to them. Now, it's crazy that it's happening now. They don't expect it. But they did believe that a bodily resurrection would happen. It was the kingdom of God, the age to come, the messianic age, the, the, the day of the Lord. Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. All this was supposed to happen. He was supposed to be the Messiah that would come in and he would overthrow the Romans and usher in the messianic age and the day of the Lord would come and all the dead, those who were in Abraham's bosom, would arise. And they would be judged. God would set the world right. Now, by the way, the Sadducees didn't believe this, but Pharisees and the Essenes and some others did. But this was the Old Testament Jewish hope. But it was supposed to end the world. It was supposed to bring this, this age to a close. And so what we see here, if Jesus arose, right? And this is like, we cannot divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament. Any attempt to is complete heresy. And, and like, you know, I know that's a harsh word, but it's like, it's just wrong. You, you can't. You cannot understand the New Testament in its fullness. I mean, the, the gospel, if you, all you do is read the gospel of Mark, you could come to saving faith. But like, if you want to really understand what's going on on a deep level, you need to understand some Old Testament themes here. What happened, what begins to click in their brains, and as they tell the disciples later, what begins to click in all their brains is end-time events have happened in the middle of history. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about the resurrection. He says, Christ is risen, the first fruits, implying that there will be more just like him. He is proof. He is living tangible, palpable, touchable proof that God's good plans and purposes will come about. End time events have happened in the middle of history. The kingdom of God that brings about the restoration and the reconciliation and the redemption of all things has drawn near and has broken into the ups and downs and lefts and rights and thicks and thins and twists and turns of our current feeble, finite, chaotic existence. We know the story so well, right? In our Christian culture in America, we live in Christendom. We've, we've been, you know, this story means the same thing to us as the Easter Bunny does. It's a nice story to tell. And so we're so jaded to it. But man, for these women, when it starts to click in their brains what this angel saying. It's a 180. Everything has changed. The darkness has become light. And it's not just light like, like this light. It's light like staring straight into the sun. It blinds them forever and takes divine healing to like be able to see again. Think about Paul when he saw the risen Lord Jesus. So that's what it meant for them. What, is, what does that mean for us? The resurrection is the basis for hope for the Christian faith, right? Like if, if, you're, if you are like consider yourself on, like on the fringe of the Christian faith or maybe not a Christian at all, like this is, for me, this is like the most compelling part 
All right. In the resurrection, God reveals his good plans and purposes for his creation. Right, That he will raise us again one day on a curse-free earth, in untainted, redeemed, restored, and renewed bodies. But one day, the reverse that in, the, the curse that entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3 would be reversed, just as God has promised. That God is not just has like these good plans and purposes for me and you and the whole of creation, but rather that he is able to pull off those plans, right? He's not just like a well-intended God that wants good things. He is mighty. Think about how I begin each prayer for those who have heard me pray. Father, you are good and great. You are merciful and mighty. You are willing and able to act on our behalf. This is why I pray those words. The resurrection. It isn't, it isn't just that, that he, he, he wants to. He can. He, God has proven that he can raise the dead. It happened. When we read those words in Mark 16, he is risen. It should change everything. And so I want us to take a few minutes to unpack that hope. The hope that the resurrection invites us to. And one of the best ways to, to define something is to, I'm way behind in this thing. One of the best ways to, to, to define something is to, to, to really say what it is not, right? So <clears throat> let me um, unpack three, three things that resurrection hope is not. And hopefully by this, you'll see what resurrection is. And by the way, these three things that resurrection is not that we're going to point out are all false hopes, feeble hopes that the world offers. They're, they're finite hopes that the world offers us. So the resurrection is not mere optimism. Optimism says, you know, we hope, we, we, we think, we, we feel like everything will work out in the end, right? Like, I don't know about, like, you know, if you know me, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic and I'm, like, cynical and jaded, so, like, you know, it's easy for me to bash on optimism, all right? Like, this is me taking a cheap shot. Um, but, like, I mean, just hear, hear me out on this, right? Hear me out on this. This like idea of, you know, let's just have a positive outlook on the future. But think about that. It's rooted in one's psyche, one mind. I can will a positive future into existence by, by sheer willpower. But resurrection, resurrection hope, on the other hand, is grounded outside of ourselves in a reality in a past historical event that actually happened. Mark 16, verse 6. He has risen. It already happened. Christ is the first fruits. There will be more. And we know it because it's already happened. A hope that is placed not inside of me and you. A hope that is anchored in the past action of God. And so when things go wrong in an optimistic mindset, right? You know, I'm just going to will this good future into existence. When things go wrong, your world unravels, doesn't it? What we thought was true wasn't true. But if we are rooted in the reality of the resurrection, God's past action on our behalf, when things go awry, when you get broken up with, when you fail a test, when you fight with your roommate, when you're on the cusp of changing your major and you feel like you're losing your identity in the midst of that process, when you are sitting alone in your dorm room at night, not sure what to do with yourself. 
as anxiety and depression of the school year begins to overwhelm every last fiber of your being. Christians that believe in the resurrection of Christ Jesus, God's past action on our behalf, can still have hope because our hope is not our perception of things. It is not our current circumstances or what we believe that they might be, but rather our future is assured outside of our thoughts and our actions, our words and our deeds. Resurrection hope reminds us that God's good future is sealed, not because of my future action or my future will, but God's past action on our behalf. And that's very good news. Secondly, resurrection is not progress. It's not human progress, right? I mean, progress, right? This belief in human ingenuity, the human project is one of, is one of consistent and, and increment, incremental progress, right? On, on a secular state university campus, like this is one of the main narratives that are out there, right? Like you all are going to school, you're being trained by professionals and, and PhDs who, who, are, who are brilliant. I mean, have reached some of the peak minds of humanity teaching you so that you can grapple with, with, with the problems that the world will throw your way. I mean, that's what college is about, right? I mean, you just think it's about having a good time, but like college is about that. That as humans evolve, we can handle whatever the world might throw our way. Just kind of one illustration of how one of the ways this manifests itself in our society is when you hear someone say something like, it's 2022, can you still believe we're dealing with fill in the blank? Right, we believe that, you know, shouldn't we just be evolving past this already? We, you know, have our diplomats sent to the UN, best and the brightest minds that not just America, but the world has to offer. We're still fighting wars. You see the human condition. Just look at Ukraine. You want to see the human condition? Let's go look at Ukraine. Christians, however, don't put our trust in chronology. We put our trust in Christ. Resurrection flies in the face of incremental progress because what is implicit in Christ's resurrection? What has to happen first? Before he rises, what happens? What? He dies. He dies. Think about the words that come right before he is risen. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. There was a uh, philosopher named Nietzsche, um, and some of you probably heard me use this before, um, but he once said, it is only where there are graves that there are resurrections. He was an atheist. He was, he was mocking Christians. Although you should read Nietzsche, he's interesting. He'll push you to think. Think about that. It's only where there are graves that there are resurrections. It's true. Later, the, the, the German theologian Karl Barth took that quote and he just made it his own. 
And he was like, wrote in one of his own books. He's like, you know what? You're right. Me too. There's only where there are graves that there are resurrections. You see, Christian hope isn't based on our own ingenuity. It isn't based on our scientific or moral, or literary or technological advancement, our ability to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not, it's not the Christian hope, the Christian hope of resurrection is not our belief that we as humans can figure it out, that we can solve whatever our fallen world throws our way. But rather, we believe that it is only out of God's miraculous action inside of tragedy, inside of pain, inside of confusion, inside of loss, all things that these women were feeling as they approached the grave. It is only out of that that comes new life. Blessedness flows forth only out of brokenness in the Christian worldview. Resurrection hope is not about us getting better, but it is about God's present and active work in our here and now. Because he's a risen Lord. He's alive and well and working today. And finally, resurrection is not escape. I don't know if you've ever been at a worship gathering and and somebody said something like this at the beginning. Um, God, you know, we have a lot going on right now and like a prayer uh, with classes and work. We are distracted. And so as we approach your throne and worship, Help us focus on you and and you alone. It's a nice sentiment, right? But here's the thing. Resurrection hope doesn't invite us to escape the world. Hear that. Resurrection hope does not invite us to escape the world. Resurrection rather invites us to see the restoration of our fallen state into God's originally good intention for his creation. Jesus doesn't disappear. It rises. It walks. And we'll see later in the text that it goes ahead in front of them. And so when we gather together to encounter resurrection hope, that's why we gather, by the way. Like every time we get together, we encounter the hope of the resurrection. We don't leave the world at the door. Rather, we take all of it, the whole of the world and our life in it. The joys and the sorrows, the triumphs and the pains, the good grades and the bad grades, the successes and the failures, the friends and the fights, the additions and the losses. And we ask God to make sense out of all of it in light of the resurrection. We don't come just like, you know, let's forget everything and we come to God, and then we you know, get our Jesus juice, and we move on with our life. And that's how we do it. But that's not what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to bring everything to the feet of Jesus and say, make sense out of it all. As one scholar puts it, we can trust God because the biblical story will help us endure. The biblical story, by the way, that is defined by resurrection hope. The biblical story will help us endure when our own little stories seem confusing and we feel forsaken. A hope that is this grand, right? A hope that is this great, that is so much bigger and better and grander than what the world offers us in in optimism and human progress and escape. A hope this large demands a response, right? 
It should change the way that me and you live out our lives in the here and now, right? It doesn't just mean that we wait until the end. Oh, goodness. Oh, I'm glad I, I'm glad I have this for when I die. I'll just keep it in my back pocket until then. Pick up with me in verse 7. The angel says, But go and tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you, trembling and bewildered. Trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And Mark comes to a close. In the English, you know, we tidy it up. We don't end with the word for, do we? We end with, you know, we make it into a sentence. One that we can understand. And this offends, right? Every ounce of our being that desires the fairy tale ending that the other three gospels give us. The risen Lord Jesus commissioning his disciples. I mean, the, the, the Great Commission's a, a cool text, right? You know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And lo, you know, as the King James Version, lo, I'll be with you until the very end of the age. I mean, it, it is exciting and gives us closure. But Mark intentionally closes his gospel in utter confusion and fear. He knows what he's doing, though, because this open-ended, middle-of-a-sentence closing invites me and you to pick up the story. We're supposed to finish the sentence. Imagine the church in Rome, the church that knew Peter, the church that mourned Peter when he died, hung upside down, crucified upside down on a cross by the emperor Nero, who would light up Christians like tiki tiki torches to light up the Roman sky. Do you not think they could resonate with these women? who feel feeble and finite and weak. And they pick up the story right where Mark leaves off with the same question. What are you going to do with Jesus? And every reader that has ever read Mark throughout the centuries and the millennia are confronted with that same question if we take Mark seriously. What are you going to do with Jesus? Particularly those of you who have been a part of this journey the entire year, which is a lot of you. What are you going to do with this new information, this, this, this good news, this hope? Are you going to attempt to compartmentalize Jesus like the Pharisees tried to do all throughout the gospel? Jesus is fit in this box, Dad, come on. Stay in this thing and then I can feel like I can have control over the rest of my life. Are you going to try to fit resurrection hope inside of a box? Compartmentalize Jesus to one portion of the lunch tray? Are you going to try to control him like the disciples constantly tried to do Peter? You know, oh, your Lord, but by the way, this is exactly what it looks like and you better live up to my expectation or I'm going to get pissed at you. Placing our agendas on him. Is that what you're going to do to Jesus? Are you going to approach him like a consumer, as the crowds often did? 
wanting Jesus to just, I mean, he's just a walking McDonald's who dispenses food for free. I get my fries and I move on with my life. And it wasn't good for my heart and soul. <laughs> Literally, it was not good for your heart, you know. That was a funny joke. You should have laughed. Thank you. <laughs> Are you going to check them off like a box? Letting this entire journey that you've been through this year go in one ear and out the other. Or, if you remember the first connect of uh, this year, as Jesus comes onto the scene, we ask the question, what do you do with Jesus? And we got a picture of John the Baptist and the disciples. John the Baptist who points, says he must become greater. I must become less. The disciples who dropped their nets, literally their entire income. They, they were running a successful fishing business. They were upper middle class. Dropped their nets and followed him. Who are we going to be like? How are you going to respond to Jesus? As always, one last time. I want you to break up into groups. Um, I want you to ask questions. How are you tempted to respond to the resurrected Lord? Are you tempted to compartmentalize them? Are you tempted to control them? Are you tempted to consume them? Are you tempted to check them off like a box? Pick one of those, talk about that. And then ask yourself, what would it look like for you to respond to Jesus by pointing and following?